Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Gain culinary intelligence right here and right now and feed your insatiable appetite just by tuning in. Are you passionate about the process of cooking? Do you love discovering that perfect recipe, carefully selecting your ingredients, adding those special touches to make the meal uniquely your own? Well, you can elevate your passion just by staying tuned because we're making every day more delicious on this show. Sharing inspiration and extraordinary dishes. If you're hungry for beautiful food and remarkable wines and juicy conversation, well, then you won't want to miss this show. This is where the most passionate food and wine lovers live. And I have lots of additional inspiration at chefjamie.com where I'm always serving up seconds. You'll find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And if you happen to have missed a show or would like to master a topic, you can find my podcasts with outlined show descriptions on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Chefs and pastry aficionados, restaurateurs, molecular gastronomers, food bloggers, cookbook authors, and more are on this show. Living legends are too. Coming up. The extraordinary Chef Francisco Magoya and the great Nathan Mirvold are at it again. Of modernist cuisine fame, the new four-volume series has just released on everyone's favorite food. That's pizza, of course. We're dishing on modernist pizza, the history, the culture, and oh, the cheese with Chef Francisco Magoya. You won't want to miss it. But first, I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts, one that makes you the best cook you know, and I hope that it helps you to master your cooking skills or make you the best cook you know. I hope that it inspires you to cook with the season or very simply to get into the kitchen or to savor that next meal. And so allow me, if I may, to attempt to wax poetic about perfect pesto. I love pesto. It's bright and it's vibrant and it's a one ingredient wonder that makes almost everything taste good. It adds liveliness to chicken salad. It makes penne taste fresh and light. It tops eggs excellently. I love it as a super simple marinade for flank steak or chicken breasts. It's also wonderful on polenta or alongside grilled vegetables. It makes a grand vinaigrette when you get to the bottom of the jar or container. And really, my list goes on and on. And the tail end of summertime right now brings a bevy of bountiful basil in the garden and usually plentiful stalls of reasonably priced basil at the farmer's market. Now, you can buy decent pesto at the store, but it's one of the easiest sauces to make at home. Pesto requires very few ingredients, right? It comes together in less than three minutes flat. It's also very flexible. It invites you to play with the flavors and the textures to create your own perfect version. Now, the classic Italian pesto includes 
basil, pine nuts, garlic, olive oil, Parmesan, and salt. But taste, in my opinion, should always surpass tradition. So I say think of pesto as a jumping off point. If you have a really beautiful garden of herbs, make a mixed herb pesto and add some mint and maybe a little bit of fresh oregano or use basil and parsley as the base. And then consider the garlic and its ability to overpower. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, When it comes to the nuts, um, pine nuts are traditional, but I say use whatever you have. Substitute walnuts or pistachios. Pistachios are my favorite. And you must toast the nuts. And then to amp up the pepperiness without your pepper grinder, you can use pecorino in place of Parmesan, or you could add a few leaves of arugula, which I happen to adore. And then there's always the acid. Lemon zest or juice is another common addition and one that I like um, for the freshness and the finish that it adds. But pesto is ripe for personal interpretation. So see what's growing in your garden and what's in your fridge and then mix to your heart's content. So I make pesto in a food processor because it's easier and faster and more consistent and more on that in a minute. As for storage, by the way, fresh pesto always tastes better, but you can make it ahead of time. And let me tell you how. So when it comes to mastering pesto, these are my top 10 tips. And they're all to keep in the back of your mind when you go to make a batch this afternoon. Number one, You want to wash the herbs very well. You don't want any bits of grit in your pesto, right? There's just too few ingredients to make it imperfect. Number two, you want to use cold water so that the herbs don't wilt and you want to dry them well in a salad spinner or between layers of kitchen towel so that we make sure to accentuate the herbaceousness without ever watering down those leaves. Now, number three, I don't particularly love a pesto that is pure basil. So as aforementioned, cut it down a bit, add parsley to fill in the rest or another herb or a mix of herbs, because I do believe it makes for better pesto. Number four, think carefully about the garlic. There are often recipes that vary from one clove to three cloves, very garlicky pesto to milder or more balanced pesto. But I happen to love the subtlety of garlic. So use roasted garlic or for a more subtle garlic punch, you could use garlic paste if you have some even better. Number five, whatever nuts you choose, you must toast them first. Just get out a small saute pan, add your nuts, medium low heat until you can smell them. That's enough to take off the rawness and it really does make the pesto better. Number six, please choose an olive oil that you like the flavor of on its own. And if you're not sure, pour the olive oil onto a plate and sprinkle it with a little bit of salt and pepper and dip in some bread. And if you would happily eat that with dinner while glassing, uh, sipping on a glass of Pinot, then the answer is you've got a good olive oil. Number seven, please don't put everything in the food processor and just buzz, buzz. It bruises the basil leaves. The nuts release too much oil. It gets kind of pasty. I could go on. Instead, I suggest that you combine the herb 
herbs, the nuts, and the garlic, and pulse pulse, no cheese, by the way. Then you season salt, pepper, and drizzle in the olive oil. Pesto is supposed to be a bit chunky, by the way, not super smooth. Let it be that way. Then stir in the Parmesan and you will have the most beautiful texture. Number eight, you don't have to use Parmesan if you don't want to, but I do like hard, salty cheese and I love Grana Padano and I love Pecorino Romano, but you pick. Number nine, when you're going to store it, you want to spoon the pesto into an airtight container, could be a plastic container or a mason jar, and you want to cover the top with a thin layer of olive oil. This might be my best chef's tip. It will ensure that you retain that bright green, gorgeous color of the pesto. It also extends the shelf life by creating an airtight surface. Then put the cap or the lid on and store it in the fridge. Now, number 10, pesto freezes beautifully. So make a big batch to savor the end of summer. You can always go the ice cube tray route. If you have enough ice cube trays, you just fill the trays with pesto and you freeze. Or what I like to do is use the little snack bags, those little zipper bags that you use for your kids' lunches, like I do for my son. And I'll fill them with just enough pesto to, let's say, enrobe a half a pound of pasta And then I freeze the bags flat and I pull one out in the morning when I know I'm making pasta with pesto for dinner or I want to season up some chicken breasts. And it thaws so quickly that way, but I always have it on hand. Okay, now you are a pesto master. Do you feel like it? Well, I certainly hope so. If you'd like more pesto inspiration, I offer you my email address so that we can dish on pesto. Email me directly, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. And stay tuned. Before the end of the hour, my last bite, as I like to call it, uh, call it out, uh, it's a two, three, four ingredient recipe, a super simple one that I leave you with every weekend. And it's a five ingredient chicken pesto soup because fall will come and you will want to use up your pesto. All right. Bigger than that, please stay tuned. Grab a snack. Come on back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. This is your culinary playground. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. Food is life. Create and savor yours. And oh, the big names, guests, and topics just keep getting bigger. I am always in awe of the work that Francisco Magoya and Nathan Mirvold do, and they are at it again. And I am over the moon to tell you that Francisco Magoya, the extraordinary chef, is back to grace this show. Using science and history to unlock the secrets of everyone's favorite food, pizza, of course, there is a new groundbreaking modernist set of beautiful volumes of research and recipes and glorious insight. The culmination of four years of 
travel, experiments, and collecting and advancing what their goal, of course, is always, your knowledge, and this specifically, the world's knowledge of pizza. Spanning 1,700 pages in three volumes with a recipe manual, Modernist Pizza has just released. And it is an indispensable resource for anyone who not only loves to eat pizza, but is interested in diving deep into the science and the stories and the culture and the history. It chronicles deep dish to Neapolitan. It's a, a deep dive into the deliciously diverse world of pizza. And to better understand our beloved fixation, Chef Francisco Magoya is here to enlighten us. Of course, Chef leads the Modernist Cuisine Culinary Team and has been recognized as the top pastry chef and chocolatier in the U.S. and beyond, and the top chef on culinary science. I am very glad to have you back, Chef. Thank you for being here. How are you, Francisco? I am very well. Thank you so much. That's a, a, a wonderful and really nice introduction. I really appreciate it. No, and, and well-deserved and, and illustrious as it should be. Um, start at the beginning. Congratulations. You have a, another multi-volume modernist cuisine manual uh, in the books, literally. Um, and it's extraordinary. I have to tell you, I'm reading page by page, I couldn't put it down and it's compelling. I wonder, and I love your opinion. Is that because we all are somehow strangely connected to pizza? Uh, I I love how you talk about that. It is uh, multicultural, right? There, there is some form of pizza in virtually every country in the world. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that pizza is probably the most popular food in the world. Yes. I think, that what we found out was that in every country there's pizza. Uh, I think there's two countries where you can't find pizza in the entire planet. Really? Um, but, yeah, and I, I don't remember off the top of my head what those countries are, but every country has pizza, and some countries have enough of a distinctive style of pizza that it makes it, it sets it apart from different, uh, all the different pizzas. So um, our effort was to be able to search out these pizzas and, you know, document them. And, you know, documenting means sometimes, actually most of the time, it requires tasting, but also speaking to the people who make it. And uh, whether it's in Naples, where it came from, or in Tokyo, or in Sao Paulo, Brazil, or in Buenos Aires, or New York City, hmm. wherever, uh, uh, you know, a distinctive style of pizza is made, we, we made sure to visit and learn as much as we could from it. Yes. And so I loved the, the chronicles of your travel and of what we call research and development in the food world, right? But that is the best part, right? R&D, we, ha- we have to taste. Um, so start at the beginning. You visited how many pizzerias and dished with how many pizza legends to begin the research for the series? In total, the number of pizzerias that we visited... Uh, were, you know, globally 300 different pizzerias. Um, And, you know, within there, you know, a a good, uh, uh, important, uh, you know, place to visit was obviously Naples because that's the cradle of pizza. Yes. Um, We were fortunate to go to Italy three times in 2018, um, always touching base in Naples, but also going south, going north, you know, where there were other notorious pizzerias and pizzaiolos that were making uh, interesting pizza. 
it was, uh, you know, a huge effort to make sure that we could speak to as many of them as possible. And, you know, it was very uh, pleasant to see that a lot of people did want to talk to us about how they make their pizza, sharing the information that they know. I mean, there were some places that were pretty secretive about, you know, how they, you know, their process and so forth, but obviously we respect that. Uh, but I would say most of the time we were able to speak to, you know, as, as many people as possible, even like the the most renowned uh, pizza makers were happy to speak with us. And so we, mm. we were very fortunate to have that as part of our project. No doubt. I mean, to, to dive so deep and get insight into those that have paved the way. I, I wonder what unexpected things you learned about pizza along the way. You know, I think the there were some very interesting things. For example, you know, of course, in the pizza itself, but more in what are like the traditions around eating pizza uh, hmm. that you know are that happen in different countries. For example, you know, in the United States, we're used to having our pizza come, you know, already sliced. Right, you get six or eight slices. Where in Naples, that's out of the question. Your pizza arrives whole, and you cut it yourself. Right. Um, Mostly because the implication is that it's the pizza is just for you. But even when you get a pizza just for yourself here in the United States, it's already it's, somebody slices it for you. So it's those little traditions that that were interesting to learn about in Sao Paulo. It's a actually a pretty upscale affair. It's it's something that you go to have for dinner only. Like people don't have pizza for lunch. Hmm. Uh, people will not eat pizza with their hands. It's always a fork and a knife. Um, and it's like the waiter serves you your slice, you know, your pizza's on your table, but they, you know, very, uh, you know, service focused, they will, they will plate your pizza slice for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's extremely popular. I mean, it's so popular in Sao Paulo that there's 2,000 pizzerias in the city alone. So, wow. uh, those traditions were what was very important, but also to see what happened with pizza after it left Naples and how, you know, it, it, what happened is people adapted it to what they had, what types of ovens they had, what type of ingredients they had. Naples was very poor, you know, and, and part of the reason why people left Naples was to find a better life, amongst other reasons. And so when they found themselves in countries that there was an abundance of, you know, ingredients, uh, so the pizzas got bigger, they got thicker, they got more cheese on them, you know. Mm. And so it, it was sociologically and anthropologically um, it's very interesting to see the progression of pizza and how people have adapted it to their reality. Yeah, very fascinating, actually. And I wonder if it's because there are so many variations, so many styles, so many uh, different personal preferences when it comes to pizza. I think making pizza for novices and connoisseurs can be very daunting. Yeah, I, I guess people are afraid to mess up. And, and the fear... What we've learned is that the biggest fear is is getting the pizza into the oven, huh. uh, and how how hard it is to get it you know cleanly off the peel, without making a mess, and it not like making a mess in your oven. How to make a you know tasty dough with a with a good sauce, good cheese, and so forth. Chef Francisco Magoya of Modernist Cuisine and the new Modernist Pizza is here, and there's more scintillating conversation in your radio right after this.
By the way, if you've just tuned in, you are late, but it's okay because Chef Francisco Magoya is here and we are celebrating the just released new modernist cuisine multi-volume series. I hate to call it a cookbook, Chef, because it's not that. It is so much more on modernist pizza. We are dishing, pun intended, about everything everyone loves about pizza. Uh, Okay, we talk about it being daunting. I think the dough is the greatest challenge for me personally when I think of pizza and great cooks alike. So uh, talk to us. Let, let's take a big bite. Uh, water, the mixer, the, uh, I mean, all the good stuff. Can you give us some some secrets, some insight, please? Yeah, I think that the baby steps are going to be very important because mm. there's, many different kinds of dough. Uh, the biggest variation you're going to have from one dough to another is going to be the amount of water that goes in it, um, you know, fermentation time and so forth. But mostly we're talking about like how much water goes into a dough. So doughs that are wetter, like for Altago, the Roman style pizzas, or, uh, you know, focaccias that are you know, very wet doughs, those are harder to handle. So if I was just starting to make pizza, I would recommend people start with easier doughs. For example, the, pe- the pizza I, I always point newbies towards is our thin crust pizza. Yes. Because it's a dough that is, is not super wet. It's a dough that is easy to mix. It mixes very quickly. Basically, it's, you mix it in your mixer, and that's, that is kind of important. I mean, you could mix it also in a food processor, and it works pretty well. Um, but mixing by hand is where some people might find that more challenging and we don't recommend mixing by hand especially if you're new at it uh mostly because it can it can be you know you can make a mess really quickly but it's it takes a long time and you Mm -hmm. might lose patience and not mix your dough right (laughs) where a machine will get the job done in 10 minutes um and important to realize when when is your dough ready when it has what we call full gluten development uh or a a fully developed dough which means that the structure of the gluten, what makes your dough stretchy, has fully developed during mixing, and you're able to stretch it enough to perform what's called a window pane test. And what this is, is you stretch the dough very thinly, it doesn't tear, and you can see light through it. Uh, that's how you can tell that your gluten has fully developed. So once you have a dough that has that strength, it's typically going to be a very good pizza dough. And so, uh, you know, knowing visually what the pizza is the dough is supposed to look like after mixing is very important. So we give people all that, the visual cues as well to look for. Hmm. Um, but also, you know, letting it rest, letting it ferment, and giving the dough time to become this very delicious uh, baked product is, is part of the equation. Um, yes. Because ingredients aren't very expensive. What is most expensive is your time. So patience is kind of important in, hmm. that, in that whole equation. It's key. Um, yeah, and, yes. you know, what I really like to recommend for people uh, who are baking at home, most home ovens aren't that great. They're, they're intended to make for multi-purposes. Uh, unfortunately, none of those are done well. It doesn't do anything specifically well. So you have to hack your oven a little bit to make it, you know, work for, you know, your different purposes. But for pizza, there's a wonderful piece of equipment that I recommend that's called a baking steel. And it's basically a uh, three-eighths of an inch thick, you know, metal slab 
that you put in your oven. In fact, I have one in my oven at home. I just leave it in there all the time. But what it's going to do is it's going to be able to give me a really crispy crust. It's mm. going to be able to bake my pizza much better than if I baked it on a baking stone or a sheet pan. Hmm. Uh, very similar in, in style to what you would get at a pizzeria. Um, and in your home oven, it's, it's important to have that sort of like heat going right into your pizza dough. Yes. Whereas if you don't have a, a, that baking steel, you're going to have maybe a flabby dough with a soft bottom crust. And so baking steel is really a good investment to make. Did I read correctly that Hollandaise is one of your favorite Pizza sauces? That sounds very strange to ask you. It's actually <laughs> extremely delicious because it is, yeah, I think, one of the most, I hate to use the term decadent because it's super cheesy to, you know, no pun intended, to use that term with, uh, with pizza. But it, we made a Detroit-style pizza, which is the pizza that's baked in a rectangular pan with a cheese on top. To You know, it reaches all the way to the side of the pan so it gets nice and crispy on the board. You get that, like, frico-like cheese. Mm. So we made a pizza like that that we then, uh, typically with Detroit-style pizzas, we put the sauce on post-bake precisely yes. for, uh, you know, avoiding that gum line, but also because it just works really nicely like that. Um, so we thought, you know, this hollandaise sauce could work really well, putting it on top and then browning it in the oven again so it got, like, a nice browning on the surface. And I just think of it now, my mouth is watering because it was, it's one of the most delicious pizzas I've ever had. Hollandaise. Um, sauces, and, yeah. 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 I mean, it was just like outrageously good. And so we thought about other emulsified sauces like that and how they would work on pizzas. And, uh, for example, we have a, uh, um, Sabayon sauce, which we make with clam juice and, and butter. Oh, a, a uh, savory, a savory Sabayon. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically that sauce went on top of our, you know, updated, modernized version of uh, clam pizza, oh. uh, in which we put the clams on the pizza and then, you know, this, this very, you know, delicious, rich sabayon, basically on top of the clams, which had two purposes. And, you know, the first was to protect the clams from overcooking in, in the baking process because they, they can easily. A clam will cook a lot faster than a full pizza can bake. Right, so if they go in at the same time, you're going to look at rubbery clams. Of course. So we put it on top of the clams, and so this this you know emulsified sauce protected the clams from getting too hot, uh, but also the addition of you know it just being so delicious, it just it created this you know really outrageously good pizza that that uh, it's just in the style of things that we do. It's mm. not you know these are components that we're putting together. They exist in the world of gastronomy, and so we all we did was think, okay, well, how, would this work on a pizza or not? So, yes, but... Th the good news is that it does. <laughs> the good news is that so many things do, right? I, that is your genius, to be able to think outside the box so much so that you bring to us the... the traditional, I'm going to call it, in the most generic sense of the word, but elevated. But this idea that we can take something that we love and make it better in a multitude of ways. Yes, and, and that is the modernist cuisine approach that I love because I am ever looking to learn and expand and raise my, my horizons. And so that is one of the beauties of the food world, right? We're, we're always getting better. And, and you prove that in every volume and in every recipe and in 
every manual and it's it's so inspiring to me i can tell you um i'm going to put hollandaise on pizza and i'm going to toast you this this coming week chef i can't wait um talk to us your favorite pizza i know it's like asking your favorite child um are you New York, Detroit deep dish? I'm fascinating by, fascinated by Sao Paulo, Brazil, and their love for pizzerias. But what's your go-to? You know, for me, I really, really enjoy, like, very thin crust pizza. Okay, me too. I feel too. like it's a pizza that I could eat almost every day. Um, and it's just, it's a great canvas. It's like an edible plate. Um, it, it's easy to, to extend. It, it bakes pretty quickly. You get a, a crispy, crunchy crust. It's, it's kind of like my go-to. And this, like you said, it's like, do I prefer it above all pizzas? I think I prefer it mostly for practical reasons. I really love what it tastes like. It's an easy pizza to make during the week. This is another exceptional body of work. Congratulations and kudos to you. I am ever in awe of your dedication to the culinary field, to your years of research that go into volumes of intelligence and insight and passion. And I will embrace modernist pizza as I have your other beautiful volumes. So uh, kudos to you and to Nathan for uh, ever teaching us. Thank you. Um, Truly a a deeper love of food. Thank you. Thank you. Modernist Pizza places the latest scientific research, state-of-the-art applications, uh, and recipes into the hands of everyone searching for answers about beloved pizza. It is 35 pounds in four volumes. It is the largest, most comprehensive book ever written about our love for pizza, and it will change the way you think and cook from the ground up. At the helm, Chef Francisco Megoya with more brilliant things to come from modernist cuisine. You can learn more. The Modernist Pizza series is available now uh, for order on Amazon or go to modernistcuisine.com and please follow Francisco for glorious culinary insight at F. Migoya. F is in Francisco, M-I-G-O-Y-A. Uh, thank you for gracing this show once again, Chef. It is my my pleasure and my honor to have you here sharing your passion. Chef, thank you very much. Thank it's you. A pleasure. As thank always. you. Thank, thank you. you. Can't wait to have you back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We'll be right back. Informative, entertaining, and delicious conversation abounds. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're digging deep today into a fascinating new read for curious foodies. Into the minds of chefs. And what incredible insight. It's beautifully written prose from an industry legend, a wonderful read, and I know you'll be inspired. The book set to release by Emmanuel Laroche is entitled Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, and it's a collection of dialogues with award-winning chefs from various backgrounds and cultures and regions, and they all share their very personal experiences and anecdotes as to where and why food culture is where it is today. 
Emmanuel Laroche is a veteran of the food industry. In fact, he works for Simrise as the vice president of marketing, a global manufacturer of flavors for the food and beverage industry. And he hosts a very popular podcast, in fact, one where all of these stories stem from. It is a a beautiful, award-winning Audible called Flavors Unknown, uh, but even better than listening, he's here live with us to dish. And I am so delighted to have you. Bonjour, Emmanuel, and welcome. Bonjour, Chef. <laughs> Hello. How are you? I'm, I'm well. I am delighted to be, um, you know, on your show. And mm-hmm. I was really, um, you know, listening to you pronouncing correctly my name. <laughs> I was like, wow. My, <laughs> I my, love your Merci. My <laughs> high school French paid off. Well, I hope that you are well. And congratulations on the book. Um, you'll forgive me. I haven't read it start to finish yet, but I'm knee deep in it. And the, uh, the stories and the connections, even more so, that you make really stand out for me. If you would, take us back. Give us the backstory of how your podcast came to be. And then, of course, this beautiful book of words and insight and inspiration from chefs. It is really a, a very current and progressive, and I love that. So the, the podcast started back in 2018. And um, I, um, I'm a very passionate person about food. Uh, it started a long time ago when I was uh, a child, you know, in, in France. And uh, I was cooking with my mom and my uncle that had a restaurant and a cafe and hotel, and then my siblings. Um, and then, you know, when um, I, I came to the U.S. about 20 years ago, um, in um, my um, job responsibility, uh, being like the VP of marketing for Simrise with the flavor manufacturer, I have uh, the opportunity to meet a lot of those chefs uh, around the U.S. Hmm. And um, I have developed like uh, a partnership with a company that you probably know of uh, called Star Chef. Yes. And um, I was able to start um, um, moderating panels with uh, chefs um, for the company I, I work for, for Simrise. And I really love the dialogue and the connection with those culinary leaders. So when I say chef, it's chef, pastry chef, mixologist, you know, from around the country. Yes. And um, I wanted to continue those conversations because those panel discussions were very focused around flavors um, because that's, you know, the focus that I had during those discussions with our customers. Um, But I wanted to dig deeper and um, align with my company and as well with uh, Star Chef, and they were okay with that. I decided to um, create and launch this podcast, Soul Flavors Unknown, and that's how the whole story started. Yes, and um, how the book came to be is you've documented these great minds and, and shared your experiences over all these years of these innovators and entrepreneurs, all restaurateurs or chefs, right? The idea was that, um, you know, I wanted to bring people more people to the podcast, and I wanted mm-hmm. to really share uh, those discussions and conversations with a greater audience. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as you probably do as well, because, you know, with your very, um, you know, famous and established podcast, you know, when you engage conversation with the listeners, then you learn a lot. And I learned that, for instance, people listening to my podcast, that they were 
listening to, you know, two or three episodes that, um, because they know the guest, because they have been in the city or they live in the city where the guest is from. Can you pinpoint one or two very significant things that you have learned about the world of chefs in all of your conversations, something that stood out? The thing that was really interesting for me was um, this idea of um, the quest for the quality of ingredients that was really uh, very common to all the, the chefs, and, and you know what I'm talking about, obviously, being yes. one of them. Um, and the idea that, you know, everyone should support, like, the farmers, going through the farmer's market and supporting local business. So that was something that was very, very important in all the conversation that, uh, that we had. The book is a wonderful mm-hmm. read for novices and connoisseurs, for those that are curious, who those that, for those that want to understand where food and food culture lives today. I think it will inspire you to create a new flavor combination or develop a new dish it is for food enthusiasts, and that's what we all are, no doubt. Emmanuel, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your passion. Thank you very much, Chef. I really okay. appreciate um, um, you need to be on your show. And so that brings us to the end of an hour. Oh, such a good hour of delicious conversation, fabulous food, gastronomic inspiration, and legends. And I certainly hope that you... Heard music to your ears, I should say. Uh, I will leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary inspiration, food-loving banter for this weekend. But I'll thank you first for listening. I hope you'll tune in every weekend uh, as I celebrate food in your radio. Here is my last bite, the recipe that I post on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen with uh, the measurements, ingredients, and everything you need to make five-ingredient chicken pesto soup for this week. It's actually five simple ingredients. If you have chicken thighs, preferably bone-in chicken, in your fridge or freezer, and some chicken broth or stock, and maybe some spinach leaves or arugula, and half a cup of that pesto you made from the garden that you swirl in at the end for that cheesy, herby, vibrant green punch... This is a beautiful, hearty soup once the fall comes, and I know you're going to love it. I'm posting my five-ingredient chicken pesto soup once again on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, where I hope you'll become a friend and a fan. And I will meet you here next weekend when I do guarantee there is lots more to sink your teeth into in your radio. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Bye.